For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Hello and welcome to the Spike Podcast. I'm Ella Whelan, Assistant Editor at Spike, and this week you'll hear from Paul Embry on the battle for Brexit, Natalie Rothschild on the frightening increase in anti-Semitism in Sweden, and Emily Offey on Me Too and why the sex panic has gone too far. This week, Parliament voted in favour of Amendment 7 of the EU Withdrawal Bill, which gives MPs a meaningful vote on the final UK-EU Brexit deal. This is democracy, we've been told. But is it? Didn't we already decide, as a nation, the final Brexit deal? Get us out of the EU. Why should our MPs, 75% of whom voted Remain when only 48% of the electorate did, why should they get the final say? Isn't this actually a threat to democracy when you consider the fact that most, if not all, of the political class is trying to dilute Brexit in one way or another? The EU often gets hailed as a benevolent, even socialist institution, and you rarely hear from lefty Brexiteers. So to get a different perspective on what's going on with Brexit, I spoke to Paul Embry from the Fire Brigades Union. I went to see Paul in his office in North London to discuss why the battle for Brexit is still very much on. Okay, so Paul, last night the UK Parliament voted by 390-305 in favour of Amendment 7 to the EU Withdrawal Bill, which will guarantee MPs a meaningful vote on the final UK-EU Brexit deal. MPs are cheering, I know lots of people on Twitter are cheering, are you? I'm not particularly cheering about it, but um, I think it was it was probably more symbolic than anything. I'm not sure it changes an awful lot in terms of the, the government strategy. Um, I mean, the government had offered a meaningful vote to, to MPs anyway. Um, so in that respect, I'm not sure there's a, there's a substantial change. I think the reason I say it's more symbolic is I think it's, it's being seen as a victory by the people who want to stop Brexit. So if you look at the the reaction of people both inside Parliament and beyond uh, who have been shouting the loudest over recent months about the need to, to stop Brexit or at the most, or at the least I should say, the need to, to have a Brexit which effectively keeps us in the um, in the EU uh, in all but name. Those are the people who, who are tending to, to to be doing the crowing at the moment. So I think I think in many respects they see it as a victory. They've got their tails up and they think maybe it can now lead to to something more serious in terms of stopping Brexit. But substantially, materially, I don't think it changes an awful lot. You're a Labour voter, blue Labour. And um, what do you think about the fact that what Keir Starmer said when he called on the government to put membership of the single market and the customs union back on the table? Was that a sign once and for all? Because lots of people have been confused about Labour's approach to Brexit. Is this a kind of, all right, here it is, they are not going to support Brexit in the way that me and you understand it? I think people are confused about Labour's approach to Brexit, frankly, because Labour is confusing people because it clearly does not have a clear line. Now, whether that's by design, what some people sort of call 
constructive ambiguity? Um, I don't know. I suspect not. I think it is just a bit of a, a shambolic, you know, a, a approach, uh, an entirely disjointed approach where I think, you know, you've got different elements in the party who are clearly trying to appeal to different people and there's those different conflicting pressures. You've got MPs in sort of metropolitan remain supporting constituencies. You've got MPs in very much sort of working class post-industrial heartland leave supporting constituencies. So the party itself seems to be vacillating between the two positions. Arguably, you know, that helped the party during the during the election in June, but I just don't think it's sustainable. Um, and I think the problem is at some point Labour is going to have to choose what side it's on. There are voices within the Labour Party calling for the party to come out unashamedly in, in favour of stopping Brexit or at the very least um, in favour of staying in the single market and the customs union. I think the problem for Labour is in many respects it's it's reached its high watermark in terms of its appeal to remain um, supporters in terms of you know particularly that that element of remain supporters are the sort of metropolitan liberal remain supporting constituency what it hasn't done is won back the millions of once loyal but now lost Labour voters in those traditional Labour constituencies 70 percent of which um, voted leave and if it's seen to be pursuing a policy which keeps us in the EU in everything but name, um, there's no chance of winning those people back. So so it's a pretty shambolic line the Labour Party has got at the moment. It needs to become much clearer. And until it does, uh, I think it's, it's just not going to win back those, those lost voters who should be its main target. And then I was going to ask you about the Tories, but really my question is about the whole political class, really. I mean, they were, especially the Tories were selling themselves as the Brexit party. Certainly Theresa May, as we all remember her, Brexit means Brexit slogan, kind of made a lot of promises in relation to doing things properly. And now very much it seems that she herself has capitulated to the EU compromised. Certainly they are not the Brexit party anymore that they kind of sold themselves as. But on the whole, you know, can we trust any in the political class when so many MPs are kind of unashamedly against Brexit, talking in quite anti-democratic terms. Can we trust any of the politicians to see through what people voted for last year? No, is the is the short answer to that question. And I remember being interviewed um, just a couple of days after the, the Brexit vote last year and, and making it clear that actually this was still going to be a battle. This was going to be a battle for many months, possibly years to come. And that actually, the, 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 as much as I was in favour of Brexit and as much as I was pleased at the, at the outcome of the referendum, the fact is we were always going to have an establishment and a government which was largely in favour of Remain negotiating Brexit, negotiating our exit from the EU. So you had and you still have people who really didn't believe in it ultimately uh, who are now in charge of exiting the EU. And of course, that's 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 a complete conflict in many ways. And the only way we're going to ensure that they that they do it at all is to is to maintain that pressure on them because we've got people the majority of the cabinet are in favor of remain the main political party is certainly the labor party is overloaded in terms of the parliamentary labor party in terms of remain supporters the establishment generally in terms of the IMF the CBI big business the banking industry arguably the civil service as well very much part of the establishment very much part of remain and all of a sudden they were they were hit with this thunderbolt of the people actually wanting something that they didn't want and then be in charge with the task of delivering what it was that the people wanted so of 
course you're going to have this inertia you're going to have this reluctance by people who, who have been told to do something that they didn't really want to do in the first place so I was never under any illusions you know on the on, on the day after Brexit the 24th of June last year that all of a sudden this was going to be a smooth path the people had spoken and the, and the establishment was going to deliver it was always going to be a battle it's still a battle and I suspect that battle is going to go go on for some time yet. Talking about the battle for Brexit there's been a really interesting surge in support for the EU that goes beyond the Remain vote, goes beyond the political question of um, staying or leaving the EU. I saw that you commented on Twitter about the fact that there's this strange situation in which you have people flying EU flags. There's loads of young people who bought EU merchandise around the time of the vote. You see people painting I love EU on their face. There's a, there's a real kind of like feeling that suddenly this kind of not very old institution that is a strange political institution that not many people I think would have you know on either side would have cared very much about before the referendum question and yet now it's kind of got these fans I mean how do you explain that it's weird isn't it how you know the the sort of liberal remain supporting establishment are quite happy to see that sort of flag waving jingoism almost when it comes to to people walking around London flying EU flags and, and protesting passionately and having their faces painted you know in the in the design of the the eu flag but you can you can imagine if it was a working class person who voted leave if if they were walking around making their political views known whilst flying the the union flag and having the union flag painted on their face you just know the reaction would be one of horror and you know those people would be undoubtedly described as all sorts of things uh for doing that and it is it's very odd it's you know the the sort of fervor around the the eu it's almost a kind of, although it's it's not a nation state yet, um, you know, we know that a number of people in uh, in high positions throughout Europe want it to be so in terms of a super state, but it isn't there yet. It's not a nation state, but nonetheless, there are people who will take part in this kind of rampant nationalism almost uh, around the EU. Um, and it is bewildering in many respects to see, you know, you mentioned young people, to see young people buy into that because it, it just strikes me that actually many people don't actually seem to have an understanding of what the EU is about. I think there's many people out there who see it as this kind of progressive, benevolent institution that's in favour of peace and harmony and uh, some people see it as some kind of socialist institution, a complete misreading of the situation. You know, actually, you, we need to explain to people this is this is an institution which is in favour of rampant market forces, which is in favour of privatisation, which is in favour of austerity, you know, which has delivered mass unemployment across the EU, which has been responsible for the rise of the far right across across the EU area, uh, which has ground the noses of Greek people into the dirt in terms of imposing a, a crippling uh, austerity bailout on Greek people and, and, and people in Portugal, etc. And as a result of that, we've seen massive um, social social problems in some of those countries and huge youth unemployment, the smashing up of public services, etc., and you then look at some of the, the EU laws around state aid and the fact that, you know, we can't take some of our industries into public ownership. You look at EU competition law, which stops us from renationalising the railways, for example. You look at the EU um, stability and growth pacts, which prevents uh, nations from running, a, a, a member states from running budget deficits of more than 3%. 
you have to look at some of that stuff and think, well, actually, was was the Labour manifesto uh, that apparently was so popular in June even deliverable with some of those, you know, real serious restrictions that would have been placed on an incoming Labour government? And arguably, in many respects, it wouldn't have been. And, and you know, trying to, to explain to people that this institution really is not what you think it is, uh, really is not what it's cracked up to be. It just strikes me that some people have never contemplated the alternative argument they've just been told the eu is this benevolent progressive institution you know hands out flowers and is in favor of peace and internationalism and actually when you when you scratch below the surface it is something very very different well finally then paul i mean brexit still is painted as a expression of a racist desire it's still very much slammed you know you'd think after the amount of time we've had now that leave voters would be uh, listened to and treated seriously but of course there's still very much a lot of prejudice about it and yet polls consistently show that there is no such thing as regret regretting brexiteers and um, brexiteers are very much still steadfast in their demand for what they voted for and people aren't kind of second guessing themselves even with this complete onslaught from not only the political class but um, much of the media you know why is there still this positive desire why can't brexiteers be knocked one of the main reasons that people voted leave in the first place is because they think they felt that the political class had stopped listening to them uh, and had a complete tin ear to to their concerns and then when they have subsequently seen over the last 18 months that same political class trying to undermine their vote and in some cases calling for a second referendum doing everything they can to get us back inside the eu all it does is just confirms people's fears and con- confirms people's feelings in the first place in terms of, of not being listened to. You know, I, I think people were very clear, the 17 million or more people who voted leave were very clear, we're doing this because you lot don't care about us and you've stopped listening to us. And until the establishment realises that was the reason why people voted leave and, it, and still it's, until it starts tuning into those concerns and addressing those concerns, there's no chance of people suddenly, you know, flocking back into the arms of the political establishment and it's interesting that actually many of much of the discussion certainly around the you know the the media and the sort of Westminster commentariat uh, since the since the referendum has been about you know technical things about the the single market and about the customs union and about you know the Irish border and stuff like that now obviously there's a debate to be had about all of that stuff but what it's doing is it's missing the bread and butter issues that most people voted leave for in the first place you know people particularly in those working class areas who had suffered under austerity and deindustrialization and had concerns over mass immigration and the impacts on housing and public services and low wages etc none of that has been discussed properly in the wake of the brexit vote it's all about the very sort of technical issues um, and until politicians and the political class start actually realizing and understanding why people voted brexit and, and, and until they start addressing those concerns and people see that they're addressing those concerns why on earth would people regret it they they weren't listened to they're not being listened to now and until they are their views are not going to change and why should they to hear more from Paul, watch Brexit and the Battle for Democracy, Spike's film on the threat to Brexit and the struggle for the vote, featuring Paul, Gisela Stewart, Bruno Waterfield, Harsim Rakawa and Tom Slater. It's a film that gets more relevant by the day. You can find it on YouTube or on spiked-online.com. Now for our next guest. Donald Trump's announcement recognising Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel has caused a stir. There have been protests across Europe and in the Middle East, criticising the marginalisation of Palestinians living in Jerusalem. 
Unfortunately, but perhaps not surprisingly, many of these protests have anti-Semitic undertones. And in Sweden, the anti-Semitic nature of anti-Israel protests was front and centre. Molotov cocktails have been thrown at synagogues, there have been chants of kill the Jews, Jewish cemeteries have been targeted, and most of these acts have been carried out by Muslim men, something Sweden is unwilling to talk about. Is the fear of Islamophobia preventing an open conversation about how to tackle the tension between Jewish and some Muslim citizens in countries like Sweden? What can we do about the rise of anti-Semitism in Europe? To talk this through, I called Natalie Rothschild, who is a spiked writer and a radio producer and journalist in Sweden. Well, first of all, Natalie, you recently reported on a spate of anti-Semitic attacks in Sweden following President Trump's announcement that the US will recognise Jerusalem as Israel's capital city. Can you tell us what kind of things have been happening? Well, what's happened is what now tends to happen every time there is a sort of flare up in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Demonstrations in Europe, uh, including in Sweden, expressing solidarity with uh, the Palestinians. That's not new. But in the past, I think these kinds of demonstrations, and there were several held in different locations in Sweden over the weekend, starting Thursday, actually, they've been uh, kind of dominated by lefties, uh, people expressing solidarity with the Palestinians and so on. Of course, people from with roots in the Middle East have also been in those demos in the past. But now they're actually, at least in Sweden, more and more organized or spontaneously held uh, by people from the Middle East. They're a lot more intense. Uh, the slogans and chants and the signs uh, are commonly uh, in Arabic. There's flag burning, uh, a lot of anger, and uh, a majority of the demonstrators are men, or so it seems from the videos and the footage that I've seen of the demonstrations that took place. So the character of the demonstrations, I think, is changing quite a bit. Of course, as part of this, inevitably, it seems uh, those demonstrations have uh, anti-Semitic expressions. Uh, over the weekend, there was also um, acts of violence uh, w- uh, with uh, anti-Semitic uh, motives. I mean, but is there anything new in Trump saying this? Because am I right in thinking that most uh, US presidents, certainly Barack Obama, Bill Clinton, George Bush, have all also recognised Jerusalem as the capital city. I mean, it's been standard US policy for quite some time. So why now are people upset about Trump doing that? Perhaps there is uh, ignorance around this. I mean, the law that you referred to is the Jerusalem Embassy Act, which of course was passed for the purposes of relocating the US embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And also the act calls for Jerusalem to remain an undivided city uh, and for Jerusalem to be recognized as the capital of the state of Israel. So in a sense, it goes further than than Trump. He did not stress the undivided uh, bit of that, that Jerusalem should be an undivided city, which uh, Obama, among others, have, have been much clearer on than him. But the difference is, of course, that U.S. presidents, Clinton, Bush and Obama have Every six months, they've signed a presidential waiver uh, that delays the relocation of the embassy and the recognition of Jerusalem as, as Israel's capital. Uh, Trump signed it uh, as well in June, but then at the start of this month, of course, he inform- informed the Palestinian Authority that he would go ahead and recognize uh, Jerusalem as the capital and, and begin the process of moving the embassy. So it is different in the sense that he has come true on the promise and it was of course election vow so now 
you know, it's real in a sense, perhaps, that it, that it hasn't uh, been before. I mean, I think if any other president would have uh, acted upon it, it would have caused demonstrations as well. But Trump has uh, anything he does, of course, as we know, has a tendency to, to agitate. Tell us more about this fear of Islamophobia in Sweden, because as you've said, most of these demonstrations that have turned anti-Semitic have been carried out by Muslim men or some Muslim men. Uh, Is there a kind of unwillingness to get to grips with that difficult fact in Sweden? Yeah, I mean, I think this term Swedes with roots in the Middle East has become a sort of euphemism for Muslims. Uh, Of course, those with roots in the Middle East who are engaging in these kind of anti-Semitic chants, I would be surprised if they aren't Muslims. I mean, of course, what I mean by that is we have immigrants from the Middle East who are are Christians and from other minorities, uh, but those who tend to show up and shout these kinds of chants, it's very, it's been very difficult to to say that out loud. I mean, it's been a, a taboo, and I think to some extent still is, considering that, you know, the day after these Molotov cocktails, or it appears to have been Molotov cocktails, were uh, thrown uh, at the synagogue in Gothenburg, and also apparently at the uh, Jewish cemetery in Malmö, the third largest city in the south. Uh, And as it turned out, electrical uh, cables were cut off by the Jewish cemetery as well in Malmö. These chants calling for an intifada, saying that, uh, you know, we will shoot the Jews, likening Jews to pigs and dogs. Uh, In this battle cry that refers to uh, the Battle of Kaibar in uh, year 628, I believe it was, in which Jews were massacred and expelled, Uh, that chant has been heard at demonstrations. After all of this uh, that I've just described, uh, and and similar incidents in the past as well. Still on a um, evening news uh, program here in Sweden, there was a whole segment on what's going on and the situation and the growth of anti-Semitism in Sweden um, without the word Muslim being uttered. And I think that's kind of remarkable if people are Swedes with roots in the Middle East are chanting about the army of Muhammad returning uh, and, uh, you know, citing uh, Islamist uh, battle cries. I think it's pretty obvious that the demonstrators are Muslims, and I think if we don't dare describe the problem as it is, the reality as it is, then how are we supposed to tackle it and do anything about it? Well, finally, then, Natalie. I mean, it's a hard question, but what do you think is the solution? I mean, is the kind of standard line of, you know, expressing solidarity with Jews and condemning this in a kind of very peaceful way? Is that enough? Do we need something more political? I mean, how do we deal with the fact that anti-Semitism is on the rise in Europe? If you can't describe a problem, there's no way of tackling it. We have to be able to talk honestly about what's happening. You have the the people who gather on squares shouting about shooting Jews and calling an intifada from Malmö in Sweden, those who are throwing Molotov cocktails or spitting at the rabbi or whatever they're doing, they should be held responsible for their actions. But also the rest of society has a responsibility. And the very least we can demand is that we talk about the problem 
uh, and the facts of the problem. And what we have now uh, in Sweden is this weekend and next week, a couple of solidarity actions uh, being planned. Kippa walk, where people are marching, you know, from the synagogue through the city in Malmö. Uh, with wearing kippas, so politicians and uh, lots of different people are, are asked to join in. And you have this um, peace ring. People are going to form a sort of ring of peace around the synagogue in Stockholm. And there's love bombing, where people are putting paper hearts and messages of you know hugs and support uh, and balloons on the gates uh, outside the synagogues of Sweden. All, all very well-intentioned. But, you know, as the famous saying goes, all roads to hell are paved with good intentions. And I think these kind of acts of solidarity, soft acts of solidarity, give us a sort of impression that the society is dealing with this. But how many kippa walks and peace rings and love bombings do we need? That was Natalie Rothschild on anti-Semitism in Sweden. Now for our final guest. We're still talking about the Me Too movement. And like it or not, this sexual harassment panic isn't going away. And it hasn't seemed to slow down either. In the last two weeks, several high-profile American men have lost their jobs. In the name of protecting women from assault, are we really okay with doing away with the notion of innocent until proven guilty? And are we even talking about assault here? When knee touches and glances can get you into trouble, are we denigrating the seriousness of real sexual crimes? We've spoken about this in relation to the UK on this podcast before, but I wanted to hear what's happening in the US. So I called Emily Yoffe, who is a contributing editor at The Atlantic. Here's what she had to say. Okay, Emily, let's start off with, well, not an easy question, but a short one. Do you think Me Too, the movement, is good or bad? I think it's a good thing. And now's the time to make sure it doesn't turn into a bad thing. First of all, any kind of inchoate uh, social movement that rises up so quickly as this one has, there's no central planning. So, you know, there are going to be threads of it as we work this through that are good and bad. We've seen power is not immutable. Once very powerful people who used it, as per Harvey Weinstein, in awful ways to, uh, I mean, he's credibly accused of multiple rapes. His company was a machinery for procuring women for him who, who he would abuse and then use the company to silence them. So that's done, and it has spawned this outpouring of awful stories and who, that men have had to acknowledge. They have lost their power. So this is an incredible moment to go beyond just accusing people, but to say, we need to work to make sure this kind of thing can't happen anymore and and address some fundamental issues in the workplace. So that's really exciting. What won't be good is if this turns into kind of retribution, uh, the sexes become terrified of each other, and now is the time to make sure that doesn't happen. Once you've gone too far, it's very hard 
to pull back. That is a very generous assessment of Meteor. I would tend to be more critical of it myself. But I mean, are you worried about the rate at which it's taking down public figures who aren't as of yet proven guilty? And, you know, I'm thinking the recent examples of Senator Al Franken, the New Yorker's Ryan Lizer. What's going on with the kind of scalp-hungry nature of this movement? I am seeing what's happening in broader society is really echoing uh, what happened in the U.S. Uh, on campuses. This movement to eradicate all sexual assault on campuses and who could be against that turned into a systematic deprivation of the rights of the accused. And more than that, it expanded the boundaries of what was sexual misconduct to take in almost any kind of sexual encounter could later be construed as a violation. So that was not good. We don't want that to happen in society. And I was very disturbed by the firing of Ryan Lizza, who is the Washington correspondent for the New Yorker magazine. It's quite unclear what Ryan Lizza is supposed to have done, but from the very brief statement the New Yorker put out and his own statement, it sounds like it was an office romance that somehow went south. He's adamantly denying he engaged in sexual misconduct. The the New Yorker said he engaged in improper sexual conduct. Now, to be fired from your job for a private relationship, even if it's with a coworker, we don't want our workplaces to become what campuses became. Uh, I talked to one federal investigator who investigated claims of sex discrimination and said he had become very disturbed that this movement had turned into what he called social combat. People with unhappy relationships would go and report them to school administrators to get the other person punished. We can't have that happen in the workplace. I mean, are you worried that this sort of battle between the sexes, this obsession with sexual harassment, this idea that men need to be kind of checking themselves all the time, is this actually going to drive men and women further apart? I don't know if you're hearing it. I'm hearing anecdotes all the time as at work. This subordinate guy said, hey, nice haircut, then, then literally blanched and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. And the person who was telling me that said, no one notices my hair, so it was really nice. Yes, there's no denying people are afraid. And I've seen, uh, again, in articles, tweets, et cetera, mockery of men saying, what are the rules? You know, can I hug you congratulations about something? Or, or you know, can I say nice haircut? You know, I, I don't want to offend. And this, there's this kind of, well... You know, you should know what the rules are. Who knows what the rules are? We are going to have to work together. The men I know have been horrified by the Harvey Weinstein et al. revelations. There are millions of men of goodwill who don't want to offend, who aren't doing horrible things, who aren't exposing their genitals at work, who want to advance women's careers. And, you know, I am hearing people saying, how do I ask a female to go on the business trip, the marketing trip, to go you know, fly to another city? Is she going to look at me suspiciously? That's not going to advance women. 
Well, we've talked about what this means for men and for relationships. Well, finally then, Emily, what does this mean for women? Because uh, as we've outlined, the nature of the Me Too movement seems to be lacking nuance. Um, It doesn't seem to want to include all opinions in it. Certainly women who are critical of it get a hard time. What does it mean to paint women as, you know, all the time potential victims to be afraid of sex? Are we really essentially frightening women about sex? This is one of my biggest concerns. And again, this came out of what happened on campuses. Young women in in this country were told the one of the unsafest places you could be was a campus. And the reason you needed to be fearful was your male classmates. Uh, I don't know what could be more undermining than that. It's just not true. Does sexual assault happen? Of course it does. But it is not a mass crime. As with homicides, all serious crimes, nationally over the past generation, the actual incident of uh, sexual crimes has fallen dramatically. What has happened is a redefinition of what is sexual misconduct, which has caught up a lot of innocent men. A movement that sacrifices innocent individuals to a greater cause loses its moral legitimacy. And we don't want that to happen on a large scale regarding sexual harassment in the workplace. If this movement is going to really make a difference for people, it will have to move on past, you know, the famous men and these shocking allegations. Service workers, waitresses, hotel maids, they bear the brunt of from coworkers and customers, just the kind of disrespectful, awful behavior. And that should be addressed. We need to be able to talk about it. We also need a process. The process that's being created now, someone goes, makes a complaint, it gets in the media and the guy's gone. That's not a sustainable process. It's not a fair process. You've been listening to the Spiked podcast. To get your daily dose of spiked opinion, head to spiked-online.com. If you liked this podcast, please share it on social media, let us know. And if you'd like to help Spiked continue to thrive, please make a donation. Thanks for listening.